and uh, just uh, not news I wanted to hear, but news that she wanted, and she's wanted for a long time, and it's bittersweet to lose someone like that, but it's also so sweet because of the hope that we have. We have hope, and hope means so much, and think about where we are. So if you have your Bibles, Revelation 19, and there is hope coming, so we are 16 messages down, four more to go in our study through um, this revelation of Jesus Christ. And over the last six weeks, we have walked through and experienced the awful reality of seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls being poured out, all expressing the reality of God's wrath that will be poured out upon unrepentant and rebellious sinners during the tribu- tribulation period. And through all of these, through the seals, through the trumpets, through the Bowls, we have gone from bad news to really bad news to terrible news to the worst um, news of, of all. And the reality is that life apart from Christ means having to drink the wrath of God, which is devastating news. Many in our world, many who will literally have to drink the cup of the wrath of God, view Jesus as a a wise and ethical teacher, or they view him as a meek and mild servant, but they refuse to see him for who he is, as Savior and Lord. And even Christians, oftentimes, if we're not careful, we begin to neglect the power, the beauty, uh, the glory of our great Savior. And Revelation 19 is intended to magnify Christ in our eyes. What the Apostle John does in this vision is he intends to astonish us with the majesty and with the authority of Christ. This text has been compared to smelling salt that is meant to wake us up to the reality of who Christ is and what he has done and what he is going to do. I want to share with you real quick that the Nicene Creed was adapted in a BC, or excuse me, AD 325. And it says this, part of it says, and you see it on the screen, we believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty. And it goes on to say the creator of heaven and earth. And then it says, we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven, was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and became truly human. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And then where we're going today, he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. And there is good news when we think about the marvelous, magnificent revelation of Christ. We get to see him, and in seeing him, we desire more and more of him. But there is also great and amazing news in the second coming of Christ, by which we know when he comes, he will make every wrong right, and we will dwell with him. We will see him as he is. We will become like him and dwell with him forever. So Revelation 19 gives us a revelation of Christ and who he is, as well as a picture of his coming and what that will look like. So let's dive in this morning to Revelation 19, and we're going to just unpack the chapter today. So let's, let's dive in together, and if you don't have your Bibles, it'll be on the screen. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. 
For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the linen is the righteous deeds of the saints." And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is a spirit of prophecy. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun. And with a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against, <clears throat> against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. The two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horses, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this portion, Lord, of Revelation, this ultimate good news for those who know you, Father, today we pray that you would awaken us to see the beauty and glory, Jesus, of you and just who you are and the, the absolute magnificent truth that, Jesus, you are coming again. And Lord, the hope that that gives to us. Lord, just speak to us in this moment by your word, through your spirit. Oh, God, we're listening. Speak. Holy Spirit, speak. Jesus, speak. In your name we pray. Amen. Men. So the hour now has come for Jesus to return to the earth, what we call the second coming of Christ, to judge the world. And on Wednesday night, we looked at the dangers of worldliness, the seduction of this world that attempts to keep us away or pull us away from God. And yet what we have seen and will see is that worldliness and seduction do not get the last word. The beast 
and the false prophet do not get the last word. Satan, sin, and even suffering do not get the last word in this world. Jesus gets the last word. That is what we see and that is what we rejoice. So as this hour approaches, here is what we see. We're going to unpack three truths that we see as this hour approaches. The first is this. Heaven will rejoice greatly. Heaven will rejoice greatly. When Babylon fell on earth, the command was given in heaven in Revelation 18, rejoice over her. So what we read in Revelation 19 is literally the heaven obeying the command that they have been given. And there is one word mentioned in this chapter that's not mentioned anywhere else in the New Testament. So one word mentioned in Revelation 19 that's not mentioned anywhere else in all the New Testament. And that word is this, hallelujah, or praise the Lord. Some of you were today years old when you found out that amazing truth. But just think about it. The first time in the New Testament where we hear the word hallelujah, that's 256 chapters without a hallelujah. That's over 7,800 verses without a hallelujah. That's the presentation of Christ, his virgin birth, his perfect life, his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, all without a hallelujah. That is the spread of the gospel through the book of Acts and through the epistles, all without a hallelujah. That's 18 difficult chapters um, through the book of Revelation, still no hallelujah. And now Jesus is about to return, and the earth and heaven, or he's about to return to earth, and heaven has nothing left to say except for hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And this is the goal of history. This is where history is headed in the praise of God. Meaning, don't miss this, God brings everything to end in his praise. Everything will end in the praise of our God. And two words will resonate then and should resonate now. And those words are worship God. Worship him. And this is what we see in heaven. I'm going to show you three things that we see as far as heaven rejoicing. First of all, heaven is rejoicing in his salvation and sovereignty. So heaven is rejoicing in the salvation of God and the sovereignty of God. Look at verse 1 again. Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. Verse 6 says, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. So the first ten verses of chapter 19 serve as a bridge between the tribulation period and the second coming of Christ. And these 10 verses are filled with praise, beginning with praising God for salvation. I'm about to make a weird statement, and I promise you it's going to sound really weird to some of you, but I promise you it's in the Bible. And that statement is this. There is supposed to be joy in our salvation. I know that's weird for some of us because... Salvation isn't supposed to be joyous and fun and amazing. It's, supposed, it's only about rituals and things we're supposed to do. But salvation is about joy. In fact, if you don't have joy in your salvation, I would beg you to pray the prayer of David in Psalm 51, asking God to restore unto me the joy of your great salvation. Do you rejoice in the glory of God? Do you rejoice in the power of God? Do you rejoice in the true and righteous judgment of God? Do you rejoice in His never-ending, unfailing love? All of these things are exclusively His and rightfully His. And God's salvation will involve great joy for those who know Him, yet it will also involve great judgment for those who don't. 
We have to understand that reality. So heaven isn't just rejoicing in salvation. They're also rejoicing in his sovereignty. When we read those words, hallelujah, the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns, it points to the fact that he is sovereign. God is reigning. God has been reigning on his throne from heaven, but Jesus is about to conquer the thrones and the kingdoms of this world. The kingdom of Satan is about to crumble. The kingdom of the beast is about to fall. And don't miss this. John is sitting on the island of Patmos, as we saw in Revelation 1. He's sitting there because of the word of God and the testimony of Christ, meaning he is being punished because of his stance with Jesus. And in this moment, he is being reminded that his punishment isn't in control. The Roman leaders aren't in control. God Almighty is in control. And he sees the praise of God resonating in heaven. And may we never forget that what is already a reality in heaven, the praise of God will one day be the reality of earth. Meaning our prayers, when we pray Matthew 6, when we pray, God, your will be done on earth as it's being done in heaven. Guess what's being done in heaven? Eternal praise. Never stopping praise. Absolute amazing praise. And one day that praise will Hit the earth, and it, God's will will be done on earth as it was done in heaven. So heaven is rejoicing in the salvation and sovereignty, but then secondly, heaven is rejoicing as his spouse, which is a little different. Heaven is rejoicing as his spouse. Look at verse 7. It says, Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Verse 9 says, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So what we see here, the bride, of course, is the church of Jesus Christ. The lamb or the bridegroom is Jesus. And in order for us to understand what is happening here, we need to understand um, weddings from a Jewish culture. From the Jewish culture, a wedding had three stages. The first stage was the betrothal period, where it was arranged by the parents before, normally before the bride and groom had ever even met each other. So just imagine about that world. Um, think I might love her, but I haven't met her. Um, keep that in mind. So that would happen. And then in doing so, up to a year could elapse before um, a marriage would actually happen. And in this time, it, it kind of parallels the modern engagement, except in that culture, they were considered to be married apart from the actual benefits of marriage. And a betrothal was a legal agreement that could only be broken through divorce, which is when we read Matthew 1 and see Mary, um, the Holy Spirit coming upon her, uh, her having Jesus within her, and we see Joseph wanting to put her away. That's the whole picture here that we read in Matthew 1 of what is happening. The next step after the betrothal would be the wedding procession where the groom would take his friends and he would go to the house of his bride and bring her back to his home. When Jesus told the parable in Matthew 25, the parable of the virgin, this is what he had in mind. And then the last step in the wedding feast, or is the wedding feast, where the groom would bring the bride back to her new home where there would be an amazing feast or party prepared. Now, many people have focused, of course, upon the secondary parts of this feast, mainly what's on the menu. So what's on the menu at the, the marriage feast? And, of course, we don't know what's going to be served on the, at the marriage feast, but I can tell you, based on the authority of God's word, spinach will not be on the menu. I'm just going to lay it out there very clearly. Spinach will not be on the menu. If you don't like it, I'm sorry. Take it up with Jesus. He, he's making the menu. But here's the point. Ultimately, this feast is not about the menu. It's about the master. 
It's about the one who is serving us and the one that we serve. And the clear point here is that we must be ready for the return of Christ. Listen to verse 7. It says this, His bride has made herself ready, which is the only time in the book of Revelation where we see that God's people had made themselves or prepared themselves in any way. So how do we get ready? We get ready through faithfulness, through perseverance, through prayer, through obedience to the mission, and so many other things. But how do we do those things? And look at verse 8. It says, it was granted her to clothe herself. What does that mean? It means this, brothers and sisters, everything that you will ever do that pleases God was done by God's grace in you before you ever did it unto him. It's God working in you that allows you to please him. If you don't believe me, think about Philippians 2. In Philippians 2.12, it says this, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And we love that verse. Oh, I'm able to work out my salvation. I'm able to do it. And we never read the next verse. Because the next verse says, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. God doesn't just put us out there and say, go to work and do as good as you can. No, he's doing the work in us and through us. It is His grace and His mercy alone. So heaven is rejoicing as His spouse. And then third, heaven is rejoicing in His Son. So heaven's rejoicing in His Son. And what John describes in verse 10 is an amazing and also um, very uh, comical picture where he sees this angel and John bows down before the angel and worships the angel. And the angel says, get up. Don't worship me. What are you doing, man? I'm a servant just like you. Don't you dare get me killed by worshiping me. Worship God. And then the angel says this, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, meaning all prophecy of the Old Testament pointed to Jesus. Jesus is the center of history. Everything either... Uh, comes or points to Jesus or everything flows from Jesus. And the point is this, don't miss it, worship him. The reason this has been revealed to us beforehand is so that we might worship him. For in him we have found eternal satisfaction that will last forever. Therefore, brothers and sisters, worship him. In the midst of a seductive society, worship him. In the midst of hardship and pain, worship him. In the midst of, of loss, Worship Him. Listen, maybe, just maybe, when we come together in meetings like this, what we are doing is we're preparing ourselves for heaven. And let me just speak for some of us. You've got a long way to go. You've got a long way to go to get prepared to worship Him. Listen, listen to the words of A.W. Tozer. And if this steps in your toes, I'm sorry, these words are so true. He says, I can safely say on the authority of all that is revealed in the word of God that any man or woman on this earth who is bored or turned off by worship is not ready for heaven. If you're bored or turned off by worship, you are not ready for heaven. You are not ready to be there forever and ever in his presence. Brothers and sisters, heaven will rejoice greatly, which leads us to the second truth. Christ will return mightily. Christ will return mightily. And I'm going to say it again now that you know it's coming. And I expect you to at least give me some reference form that you know this is coming and that you want this. So Christ will return mightily. So we see the second coming of Christ to the earth. In Revelation 4, heaven was open and John was called up. Now heaven is open. Instead of John being called up, Jesus is coming down. And well, Christ is going to return to the earth with a specific purpose of bringing divine judgment and 
Establishing his rightful rule, his kingdom on earth. But don't miss this. This will not be a democracy. Jesus will not be coming to earth saying, hey, please vote for me. And we won't be seeing commercials on TV. And Jesus says, I approve that message. I, I approve that one. No, this will not be a democracy. This will be domination. Jesus is coming to dominate. But think about what we see here. First of all, his appearance will be unveiled. We will see his appearance and we will see his character because of it. Verse 11, it tells us a white horse, the one sitting on it, is called faithful and true. That's his character. And then it says his eyes are like a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems. Or many crowns. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. In Revelation 6, we saw the Antichrist coming on a white horse. Yet he was coming in deceit. He was coming as the unfaithful and the false Christ. Now at the appointed time, here comes Jesus, the faithful and true one. His eyes are like a blazing flame of fire, meaning he sees through everything. We hide nothing from him. On his head are many, many crowns. In contrast to the Antichrist who was crowned with a fragile and temporary crown, Christ wears many crowns. In the words of one theologian, the undefined multiplicity of the diadem shows Christ is the only true cosmic king. Christ should wear more crowns than any earthly king or kings because he is the king of kings and lord of lords. There's also a, he has a name written that no one knows which speaks of divine knowledge and communion with Christ that will grow sweeter and sweeter and it's enough to last all throughout eternity. Remember as we said before, we'll never come to the bottom of God in heaven. Some people have this view that you get to heaven and you know everything about God, you know everything and that's not the case. God has enough Wisdom within himself and enough um, revelation with, with himself to keep us satisfied and to keep us absolutely um, entertained and awestruck forever. Forever and ever. And he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Some see this as his own blood. Others see it as the blood of the martyrs. And some see it as the blood of those who he is coming to defeat. But ultimately, this is a picture of final victory and he is the word of God he is the revelation the final revelation of God to this world but don't miss it he is the faithful and true one so we see his appearance but his appearance shows us his character I love the story of an elderly Scottish Christian lady who was near death and she was filled with peace and comfort and hope and confidence and someone asked her how she could manage to have so much hope and confidence and here's what she said I'm resting in the truth and power of Christ's good name as faithful and true. If I should awaken in eternity to find myself among the lost, the Lord would lose more than I would. For I would only lose my immortal soul, but he would have lost his good name as faithful and true. Brothers and sisters, he is faithful and he is true. And he will be faithful to the end and he will be faithful forever. His appearance shows us that. So his appearance will be unveiled, but secondly, his army will be unblemished. His army will be unblemished. Look at verse 14. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. So this is an army made up of saints and angels, but the point is that the army is pure. 
Listen to Ephesians 5, 27. It says, so that he, Jesus, might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In Hebrews 12, it's why Hebrews 12, 14 says this, strive for holiness, for without it, you will not see God. Without holiness, we will not see God. So we are a holy bride that Christ makes us holy, presented with him in this day. But don't miss this. The reality that when, when Christ returns, don't miss this, Jesus will be out front, not you. You will not be leading the charge. In fact, brothers and sisters, think about this. We will not even be participators in this battle. We'll only be spectators. Let me give you a little dose of humility today. When Jesus came the first time, he didn't, he didn't need our help. And when he comes the second time, he won't need our help again. He will not need our help. This is his doing. But his army will be unblemished. And then number three, his authority will be undeniable. And this is amazing because it says in verse 15, From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. Verse 16, On the robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. So he will strike the nation, he will rule the nations, and there will never again be any doubt that Jesus is the King of all kings, the Lord of all lords. It seems like we've been waiting for 18 chapters for this battle to actually take place. And here it is, and it's not even a battle. Before the word Armageddon can ever even be spoken, the battle is over. It is done. And what we see in this battle, a sharp sword comes out of the mouth of Jesus and everything is finished. And here's what we know. If Jesus can create the word or the world, excuse me, with just a word from his mouth, he can surely take out the world with just a word from his mouth. One commentator, John Phillips, put it this way, and it's beautiful. He says, then suddenly it will all be over. In fact, there will be no war at all in a sense that we think of war. There will be just a word spoken from him who sits astride the great white horse. Once he spoke a word to a fig tree and it withered away. Once he spoke a word to a howling wind and to heaving waves and the storm clouds vanished and the waves fell still. Once he spoke to a legion of demons bursting at the seams of a poor man's soul and instantly they fled. Now he speaks a word and the war is over. The blasphemous loudmouthed beast is stricken. The false prophet is punctured and still. Another word in the panic-stricken armies reel and stagger and fall down dead. One and all, they fall. And the vultures descend and cover the scene. And look at verse 21. It says, The rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. At the end of history, there will be two great sufferers, one of which every single person in this room and every single person in this world will attend. Either you will eat or you will be eaten. Either you will be a guest who dines at the marriage supper of the Lamb or you will be dinner at the great supper of God. So either you will dine in His presence or you will be eaten. And in being eaten, it doesn't mean that your torment is over. It means it has just begun and it will only get worse but before we move on to the last point which is a, a point that we must take on i think together humbly i want us to remember what we've seen and i pray that it will lead us to declare hallelujah that our savior is 
coming and he will set things right. That we will declare hallelujah that he is going to utterly destroy all that opposes him. Hallelujah that he will establish his kingdom on this earth and we will reign with him. Hallelujah that he will prepare a table before us even in the presence of our enemies and we will celebrate not our victory but his victory. Hallelujah that he will finally judge the living and the dead and ultimately he will make all things right. This must happen. This will happen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. It must happen and it will happen. Christ will return mightily. It says in Revelation 1, all eyes will see him. They will understand who it is, which leads us to the last truth. And don't miss this. Outcomes will remain eternally. Outcomes will remain eternally. We find ourselves right now between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. But what we do know is that Christ is coming again. And in the words of Jesus in Matthew 25, the parable of the the virgin, those words will ring true forever where Jesus says, those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast. Afterwards, the others came, but he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. Are you ready for Christ to come? Either Christ will say, come in, enter in, or he will say, I never knew you. But when Christ comes, believers will enter into an eternal feast. There was a visitor who came one time and he said, when is the marriage supper of the Lamb? When is it going to be? And I was like, what do you mean when is it going to be? And he said, well, at what point will it be? And I said, at this point. He said, but what, what does that mean? I said, it means we'll be feasting with him forever. There's not just a certain point by which all of a sudden the feast is over. This is a picture of forever and ever. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Yet unfortunately, unbelievers will experience an eternal famine by which they will be slain by the sword. They will be eaten by birds. And Revelation 19, don't miss this, shows us there are only two kinds of people in this world. Those who follow Christ and those who reject Him. What you do with Jesus will remain forever. What you do with Jesus on this earth will remain eternally. I'm going to read a story to you. It's not really a story. It's a picture of Christ. And it's anonymously written. And I kind of changed it up just to kind of bring us into our century. But it says this. More than 2,000 years ago, there was a man born contrary to the laws of life. He was born a virgin. The man lived in poverty and was reared in obscurity. He did not travel extensively. Only once did he cross the boundary of the country in which he lived. That was during his exile and childhood. He possessed neither wealth nor influence. In infancy, he startled a king. In childhood, he puzzled religious leaders. In manhood, he ruled the course of nature. He walked upon the billows as if payments. He hushed the sea to sleep. He healed the multitude without medicine. He never wrote a book, and yet all the libraries of the country could not hold the books that had been written about him. He never wrote a song, and yet he has furnished the theme for more than all songwriters combined. He never founded a college, but all the schools put together cannot boast of having as many students. He never marshaled an army, nor drafted a soldier, nor fired a gun, and yet no leader ever had more volunteers who have, under his orders, made more rebels stack arms and surrender without a shot fired. He never practiced medicine, and yet he has healed more broken hearts than all the doctors far and near. The names of the past proud statesmen of Greece and Rome have come and gone. 
the names of the past scientists, philosophers, and theologians have come and gone, but the name of this man abounds more and more. There are almost 2,000 years between the people of this generation and the scene of his crucifixion, yet he still lives. Herod could not destroy him, and the grave could not hold him. He stands forth upon the highest pinnacle of heavenly glory, proclaimed of God, acknowledged by angels, adored by saints, feared by devils as the living, personal Christ, our Lord and Savior. And here is how it ends. And he is coming again. Are you ready? Are you ready? Brothers and sisters, if you knew the day and the time of Christ's return, how would you live? Would you live different? If you knew the day and the time of Christ's return, how would you live? And here's a follow-up. Is that an accurate description of how you're living right now? If you knew the day and the hour, would you live different? Would you do things different? Would you be more aware that he is coming? Why aren't we living that way now? And let me end this way. Ultimately, there are two ways to escape eternal judgment. Ultimately, there are two ways to make it or to enter into heaven. Way number one, be perfect. Never sin, never mess up. Never fall short of the glory of God. Now look around this room, and the closest I can see to that is Brother Curtis. And then I had a conversation with Miss Nancy, and I realized he's not as perfect as I thought he was. So we've all missed that mark. So we can't, we've scratched that one off. We can't be perfect. So what's the other way? The other way is to fall on and flee to the only Savior of sinners in this world. Run to Jesus. Run to Jesus. Here's where I want to end. What are you resting on? What are you rejoicing in? And what are you waiting for? First of all, if you're here and you don't know Jesus, what are you waiting for? What in the world are you waiting for? May today be the day of salvation. Turn from your sin and turn to Jesus. Trust Him as Savior and Lord and He will save you. But for the child of God, what are we waiting for? Are we really waiting for His return? Are we really waiting for Him to come. Maybe, just maybe, I've said this before, maybe, just maybe, God allows bad things to happen. Maybe, just maybe, God allows things that we don't want to happen here to remind us that this world is not our home. Our home isn't here. Our home is waiting to be with Him forever. Are we waiting for that? Are we longing for that? Do we want that? Oh, I pray that we do. I'm going to ask you to go ahead and stand. We're going to call the musicians forward. We're entering into a time of invitation and consecration. Whatever it is that God is telling you to do, do it. Do it in this moment. So let's pray. Father, we come before you. Your word says where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. There is freedom. We pray in this moment it would be a moment of freedom. God, whatever you're telling us to do, that we would do it. That we would walk in your freedom. That, Lord, not only are you telling us to do it, you'll give us the grace to do it. We just have to walk. So help us to walk in that pray for anyone in this room that doesn't know you that today would be the day of salvation they would stop waiting they would stop putting it off and they would turn to you now for you will save them right now for the rest of us God help us to rejoice in you help us to long for you help us to wait for your returning knowing Lord that the, the worst day here for a Christian is the only hell we'll ever have to experience but for the 
unbeliever, the best day here is the only heaven they'll ever get. Oh, I pray, Father, that we, would, that we know you. Do we know you? Are, you? are we ready? May that question just resonate over our hearts and lives. In Jesus' name, amen.